Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We are actually continuing in our series on the Sermon on the Mount, because we get to that point where Jesus gives us the six antitheses, and he chose six topics to use as examples of how the Jews were misinterpreting Scripture and how they should rightfully interpret Scripture. Those six main topics, one of those happened to deal with the subject matter of human sexuality. So Jesus put this in the top six of things that we should acquaint ourselves with. He said in the 27th verse of that fifth chapter of Matthew, you've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And you notice the, the framing of that statement in the masculine reference. That's mainly a cultural thing. We're not to read that today as though this only applies to men. But he would have addressed the men in that day. But as other subject matters that Jesus dealt with, it is inferred that this is all humanity that he is addressing. Here's some things I want to deal with in this sermon today because Jesus has opened up the subject matter of adultery, which is a perversion of God's plan for human sexuality. He's opened up the subject matter of lust, which is a problem that we also deal with in this generation, as well as man has for all of his existence on earth. Because of that, I will follow with these thoughts on this subject matter. The first thing I want to do is I want to present to you a biblical perspective on human sexuality, because I don't believe that has always been addressed faithfully and fairly. And then I want to deal with the definition of adultery that Jesus would have been speaking to by the Old Testament definition. It's limited definition, and how Jesus expanded the definition of adultery And then I want to go to the last part of this passage that I have not read yet in how Jesus insists we take responsibility for ourselves. In the history of the church and the history of Christianity and even in the history of Judaism, we have not been the best stewards of the things of God nor have we been the best teachers of the truths of God because we've been selective in what we wanted to teach and we've put spin on some of those things so it comes out like we want it to come out. And the very fact that Jesus addresses this issue of adultery shows that the Jews, that one group of people out of all the people groups on the face of the earth that were closer to God than anyone else, they managed to get the subject matter wrong. And Jesus corrects them. Now there's two primary purposes that God has assigned for human sexuality according to Scripture. The first one is abundantly clear as we go to the creation story. Procreation is one purpose of human sexuality, sex between a married man and a married woman, and all of this is very clearly implied in the creation account. 
It's virtually undisputed as we look at all creation. And the only way that this world is populated is through procreation. All forms of life are perpetuated through reproduction. So the creation account is clear when God commanded Adam and Eve to replenish the earth, fill it. That was their duty. That was every human being's duty here on earth. So there's abundant evidence of procreation. And we see in reading the Old Testament that there are many stories of our early ancestors who took great delight in bearing children and raising a family, yet we see the anxiety of the women who could not bear children. It was devastating to the people in those days. So they took this this, uh, principle of filling the earth, procreation, raising a family, so very seriously. And we do too. The second and complementary purpose and design of human sexuality was to provide this special means of pleasure and delight for married couples to share and enjoy. Adam and Eve were intended to have a relationship in a depth that they would have with nobody else. Adam did not have that quality or that depth of relationship with the animal kingdom. It was reserved only for when Eve was created that they both were to have that intimacy and that depth of relationship that they would not have with anybody else, nor would they have with their children, nor would they have with their friends. And this was all by God's intentional and perfect design. Now we studied how to read the Bible a few months ago and got into the Song of Solomon. And anybody who's read the Song of Solomon knows that this is a book, it's a love story, a love song. And as a matter of fact, some of the passages in the Song of Solomon gets rather graphic. So while the church and people representative of the church were going into the schools and pulling books off of the library shelf and saying, we want this banned because it is graphically depicting sexual acts, the retort to that was, why don't you ban the Song of Solomon from the Bible for the same reason? And so they don't, I don't know, they always had a good response to that. But it is, and the world recognizes the Song of Solomon, is a unique book in that it is, does express things about this love story, this relationship between what we presume to be a married man and a married woman, legitimately. And as they're expressing their their desires for one another and the things that they would love to be able to do with each other, some people have a hard time with this. But it's because of the Song of Solomon that we can say point number two is that God purposely created human sexuality as a the complementary purpose as one that should be enjoyed between a man and a woman who are married. Now, this was all by God's intentional and perfect design. But as I said, we haven't always been good stewards of that and stewards of the truths of God. Israel failed in God's plan for them in human sexuality so many times, in so many areas, they married foreigners. And one of the restrictions God placed on Israel, not on us, but on Israel, is he did not want them marrying outside of their people, their culture. But they did, and they failed God in that area. And that was contrary to God's specific plan. And then sometimes they they uh, begin to adopt the customs and the cultures of that foreign people that they married into. And then the further they fell away from God, they began to go into idolatry. And as they went into idolatry, they went into sexual perversions. And as a matter of fact, the word adultery became a byword, a descriptive word for the spiritual state of Israel failing God. 
So not only did they have actual sexual perversions enter into their culture because they mixed themselves with other nations and adopted their practices, but they also became spiritual adulterers because it was appropriate for God to use that metaphor to describe how they were being unfaithful to him. The Jews failed. But the church has failed as well. And I'm going to put that on hold, just pin it to the board. I'll take it back down in a few minutes. But the church has failed, and the New Testament Christians as individuals have failed because we have failed to treat our sexuality, a gift from God, as being totally sacred. And this is where I really want everybody to key in and listen. This is where we as individual Christians have failed in God's perfect plan for us. We have allowed the world's perverted values to influence our values. That's why so many churches are following the gay agenda today because we have failed to protect the gift of human sexuality as a sacred gift of God. It's the reason that self-proclaimed Christian young people lose their virginity before they marry. Because they have failed to hold their sexuality as sacred. Somewhere along the line, either they were not told this was sacred or they didn't care. And they failed to keep it as sacred. That's why so many people with a Christian upbringing move in with their lover without getting married because they fail to recognize God's plan for their sexuality as being a sacred gift from God. That's where we're failing. It's sacred, and we have not kept it sacred. And so all of these failures are happening. Now, Jesus takes adultery to a deeper level when he says to them, you've heard it said, Uh, You shall not commit adultery, but I say unto you. That's where he deepens this, broadens it, gives it a greater dimension than they ever would have given it. So let's understand how, it's, it's important to understand how adultery was viewed in ancient Judaism. The very first point Jesus makes is the fact that adultery by ancient Judaism was defined by how one takes action. So if a married person had sexual relations with any other person than their spouse that was considered adultery they had taken action and that was adultery and thou shalt not do that and Jesus said I'm going to broaden this out and he said I say that any man who looks on a woman and you can flip that any woman who looks on a man lustfully has committed adultery already in their heart. So he traced the action of adultery back to its roots, just like he did murder in the previous verses where he said, you've heard it said of old time, you shall not murder. So they said, well, I've not killed anybody. I'm good to go. And Jesus said, if you've killed him in your heart, you're guilty. I've not been unfaithful to my wife. I've not touched another woman. If you have done this in your heart, you're guilty. And he declares that that's where we should all be held responsible. So not only did the ancients limit adultery to action only, but they tended to cast some blame on the women for dressing in such a fashion as to cause a man to fall into adultery. And of course, the remedy would be that we're going to dress the women from head to toe and let their eyes peek through. And therefore, if we can keep the women properly covered, we won't have any problem with men being lustful. And you see that in the Middle Eastern cultures today, don't you? You know, that all stems back to man's not taking his own responsibilities, blaming women for that. So in the eighth chapter of the Gospel of John, the Jews bring this woman to Jesus who was caught in the act of what? Adultery. How many of you have ever read that story and said, where's the man? Because, see, that culture was blaming the woman. 
Had she not somehow enticed him, he wouldn't have done that. So that's the reason the story flows like it does. They were blaming the woman. And we see the tendency to blame the women rather than take the personal responsibility, even in the cultures today. We've recently seen many stories and videos of women being punished and executed in Islamic countries who were caught in adultery while the man is nowhere to be found. And even more shocking in the Islamic countries is when a woman is raped and then she is punished because obviously she was at fault here. And that culture tends to blame women for enticing men. Happens to be very convenient for the male population. And now the opposite and equally absurd position has come to our American culture as a result of the feminist movement and their kickback against any implication in the way that a woman dresses contributes to rape. It's not uncommon as recent as the mid to late 1900s, for people to make comments about women inviting rape because of the indecent way they dress, and then the feminist movement shooting back said, you cannot blame the woman. But where they went too far is when they said, we have a right to dress any way we want to, and we should not be held responsible for being raped. Now, here's the problem. I, I agree that no matter what, a woman does, a man has no excuse to abuse her, to rape her. That is absolutely, uh, it, it, no question, no argument. But where the problem is, is when the feminist movement ignores the wisdom of how one should dress because they say we have a right to dress anyway we want to. Well, you know, it, a woman, if she is raped, may not and absolutely would not be blamed for that, but it still has the same pain, and it still leaves the same scars. So the argument goes beyond who's at fault, and the argument now becomes, shouldn't you do everything within your power to prevent people from doing things that may be their own choice, but shouldn't you do everything? Like, so, Let's put the argument this way. Let's say that a woman says, I have a right to walk anywhere I want to walk in this city any time, day or night. Does she have a right to do that? Is it wise for her to do that? So see, it's the same thing between arguing a person's right and doing something which is wise or unwise. Jesus said, I tell you, anyone that looks at a woman lustfully, and that's the key word, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, without getting into Greek words, which will totally bore all of us, suffice it to say this. The original language infers two things by the use of the specific Greek words here. First, there's nothing in the language that implies this is only a long, ogling, leering look. There's nothing in the language to imply that it's the length of time that you're looking that constitutes lusting and adultery. So therefore, men, if you say, well, I only peeked, I only glanced, therefore I didn't commit adultery, that's not the point of this at all. Because a short glance can be just as damaging as a long ogling glance, and we'll get into why. You cannot say, well, at least I didn't stare. Because you see, the point is this. It's not what happened when you saw. It's what you did with it afterwards. So a brief glimpse can be very damaging after the fact. That's the reason we have to be careful. It's not about the length of the stare or the glance. The second thing that is implied is that it, whatever happens after the image enters is what makes the difference. So obviously, every one of you are fully aware of the fact that there's going to be a, an overload of images that enters the eye gate in this day and age, day after day in our life. We're going to behold just a, a whole lot of different things. It just comes rushing in. 
When an arousing image is entertained, it becomes the seedbed for lust. Now, let me now go back a little bit in church history and tell you about the church's miserable failure in properly and faithfully teaching a godly and biblical perspective on human sexuality. It's because we have done so poorly on this that we have such perversions today about the subject matter of human sexuality and such failures in the church and why the world is winning the propaganda war because the church has failed. It's a well-documented matter of historical record. And Paul didn't start it off in that direction. Have you read the letters to the Corinthians where Paul took time to deal with some of the sexual issues that were there? He was, he was very forthcoming in dealing with this, telling people how to remain faithful one another, how to keep the marriage bed pure and undefiled, what to do about young men or young ladies who might be burning a little bit in their lust. It's better to marry than to burn in your lust. He, he dealt with this. There was no shame in him dealing with this. He was trying to give them a healthy perspective on God's gift of sexuality so they knew how to deal with these feelings in their life. But nobody seemed to follow Paul's cue very well because the church did not keep on teaching a godly perspective on human sexuality. As a matter of fact, one of the great noted theologians of all Christian history is St. Augustine. You probably have called it St. Augustine, and it doesn't matter what you call him. You recognize the name. He was brilliant, and he was influential, and his writings continue to be influential in Christian theology today. Yet, in spite of the fact that Augustine was so brilliant and so persuasive, do you realize he held this shockingly absurd opinion about sex? He believed the entire failure in the Garden of Eden was due to sex between Adam and Eve. He believes there was no fruit on the tree. He believes that was a metaphor for Adam and Eve should not have sexual relationships. So, in Augustine's understanding he put Adam there and Eve there in the buff and said and don't do anything no messing around and when they did mess around they got kicked out now this is Augustine's understanding of the failure in the garden so therefore he taught that Eve bore children in pain because Adam couldn't keep his hands off Eve. He further insisted that everybody should practice celibacy. Do you realize how quickly the population of the world would come to an end if we lived according to Augustine's recommendation? He was so influential, a teacher and a theologian. His perverted views, perverted views on human sexuality then influenced the church for centuries to follow. Making the subject of human sexuality, according to God's definition, a taboo matter in the church, something we will not condemn. You know why? Because Augustine said, this is wrong, this is evil, this is sinful. How many of you heard the modern-day uh, uh, cultic guru Bill Gothard? Anybody acquainted with Bill Gothard here? Bill Gothard, I will talk about him, it has, been, has been a huge uh, uh, personality in Christianity for the past 20 years, 30, maybe 30 years. And he had basic youth, uh, and people would go to, he didn't pastor a church, he just, he just had these, these uh, seminars that he'd put on. And then people would enroll in his classes, and he taught basic youth. And the, the man, to this day, uh, has been charged with many, many, many counts of uh, sexual abuse to the young girls who were entrusted to his care. He was a, he was a fruitcake, a, a flake, and, and everything else you could possibly call him. But, but I pastored churches where they were Bill Gothardites from beginning to end. You couldn't persuade them any differently. Well, Bill Gothard, he actually taught when you get into his deeper teachings... And learn from this, this cultic guru, he thought that when a husband and a wife had an intimate encounter in their bedroom, the Holy Spirit left. 
Now, you think that's odd. That comes from the teachings of Augustine in teaching that this is something God doesn't approve of. This is something the Holy Spirit doesn't approve of. This is something that is shameful. This is something that is ugly. This is something we don't talk about. And we have all kinds of dysfunction in marriages because we don't understand what God really expected of us because the church has not faithfully taught what it's all about. And then we, we became victims of what we call the Victorian era, where, of course, that was, uh, human sexuality was highly uh, repressed. Puritans, highly repressed. And the church bought into that, so we were silent. We didn't talk about that. God put Adam and Eve in the garden without clothing to show to us that in a perfect, sinless world, there was nothing to be ashamed of within his context there was nothing to be ashamed of but we have a hard time getting a hold of that don't we because the world has has surrounded us with their own perverted understanding and philosophies and ideas so we're getting mixed messages and we don't know who to believe because the church hasn't been teaching on it failed to clearly preach the message of what was we, we the church has often when they've preached the message it's been what's wrong with the world's view of it But when, I mean, generation after generation has come along flooded with with, uh, questions about their own sexuality and what am I supposed to think about this? And the preacher never preaches about it and the Sunday school never teaches Sunday school lessons on it. I don't know what to believe and who do I ask? And they've got questions that deserve answers. And the church's embarrassed silence on the matter to make sex... Uh, it, it contributed to help the world make uh, sex look like fun, sneaky, naughty adventure into forbidden territory. And that's the kind of promotion that is highly appealing to fallen human nature. We contributed to that. How many times have we as the church even dared to stand up and treat the Scripture and God's plan for us so honestly and stro- so straightforward? has to tell our young people, you know what? Human sexuality is a gift from God. It's a sacred gift of God. And when you get married, uh, not only are you two going to have the joy of raising a family, but you're going to experience a relationship with somebody else in an intimate fashion, unbridled, unfettered, unrestricted, that is going to be the best experience you've had on earth with any other human being. Look forward to it. Anticipate This is going to be supreme and superb. And we teach them that. And the only way this is going to work for you in God's plan is if you wait until you find your husband or your wife and you give yourself to them and you discover each other in intimacy. Now, have we told them that? Have we told them how great this is going to be? Or have we failed to talk about it? And Anne, as I'm giving her a little uh, preview into my, uh, into my sermon, uh, she asks me this question. Did we do well in raising our boys? And I said, no, we didn't. Because, you know, I, I don't remember sitting down with them and telling them, your mom and I have a very, very special relationship that we don't share with anybody else. One of these days, you're going to choose a wife, and you'll have a very special relationship with them too. And when you two have this special relationship that's unrestricted, unfettered, and you're doing this within the plan of God, you're going to have a, a relationship that only comes through this way. So if you'll wait until that time and you'll choose your husband and choose your godly wife in such a fashion, what, you, what awaits you is, is, is superb and supreme and, and extreme joy for your life. But if you don't wait and you take this out of its context, you're going to ruin God's plan for your life. Now, that would have been very easy to say, but in that day, I did not have the means to be able to put that together like that. So she asked me, and I confess, we didn't do that good of a job. So if you want to have more kids, we'll try it again. Now that we know the mistakes we've made, young people say, I'm so confused. Who do I listen to? Who's telling me the truth? 
Young people in church terribly confused about sex and their sexuality because the church has failed to boldly and faithfully teach them God's truth. Young people who have formed their opinions from the church's one-sided condemnation of the world's view of sex, but not teaching the, the, the positive side, just the negative side. Don't, don't quit, quit, can't, can't. Now, the world doesn't get it. They always use the argument, that our bodies are very natural and we should not be ashamed of them. You know that's the world's argument. They celebrate their nude bodies and challenge laws against public indecency all the time. The world forms nude bike rides. That in itself is a picture that just disturbs me. Makes you not want to buy used bikes. They, they, they have nude marches. They have nudist colonies. Families have been known to practice nudity within the family. And a quick internet search of the phrase families that practice nudity turns up 5,260,000 hits. And all of the first several pages had to do with positively approaching the subject matter. Why families ought to seriously consider having family nudity. Which... How graphic do I have to get? Mom, dad, son, daughter, everybody just runs around in the buff, and they're, they're supposed to learn to be perfectly okay with this. And here's the problem. They don't understand that nudity was never intended to be shameful in a sinless world. It was shameless in a perfect world. It was never intended to be shameless in a sinful world because when sin came, God ran and grabbed some fig leaves and said, cover yourselves up. You have failed in my perfect plan, therefore you cannot enjoy this in this context and say, hey, everything's okay. You're going to learn that your, your, your nudity is a reminder of the failure of the holy couple before God. So he only left one area in which you maintain that innocence of the Garden of Eden, and that is between husband and wife, not between wife and son, not between father and daughter, not to have friends over, not to go into nudist colonies. That's where the world doesn't get it because they have taken it out of the context of only where God says this is permissible, and they've put it in the context of this is just natural. Animals don't wear clothes. Well, animals didn't sin. They don't have that, that, that context of having failed God, therefore God has not made the limitations on it. God from the very beginning demonstrated how it should and should not be. And it should be our bodies. It should be held as sacred and something to be shared only between husbands and wives and not with the whole family. No wonder there's so much confusion in the world. No wonder the world puts forth compelling arguments, but they always miss the main point. They fail to recognize the devastating impact of sin and what that does to God's plan for our sexuality. Now Jesus brings us to the point where he says, any man that looks at a woman lustfully to lust after her commits adultery in their heart. See, lust is the perversion of the pure and the holy and the sacred gift of God. And I quote my good friend, Dr. Robeck. I emailed him, professor of church history at Fuller, and asked him for a, a quick uh, a synopsis of the church's history on on uh, the teaching of, of our, our human sexuality. And he sent me back a sermon he had preached a few years ago, as well as giving me some, uh, some thoughts he had typed out. But in this sermon, I, I quote something that he had said in there. He says, lust is the most common gateway to things like premarital sex, extramarital sex, pornographic sex, for-profit sex, same-gender sex. All of these things are distortions and misrepresentations of what God intended when he created sex and sexuality and called them good. Lust is the main gateway to every perversion of what God intended to be good. Now we see the importance of how Jesus framed his antithesis. It's very clear that the physical actions of adultery 
are not the only way we can fail God in sexual impurity. The Old Testament spoke about lust. It did in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's possessions. It's talking about lust. But they failed to bring the commandments together of thou shalt not commit adultery and thou shalt not covet the lustful part of it. They didn't get it. So they always going around saying, do not commit adultery. And of course, we told you about how the man was generally exonerated and the woman blamed. And Jesus said, you guys got this so messed up. I'm going to bring all of this together into one package and help you understand it's not just the act of adultery. It's not who's to blame for this in, in, in your own perverted assessment of the situation. But here's the point. Is you've got something rotten in your heart and that's where it begins. And if you don't address that, you're never going to please God. What's in your heart? That's where it goes wrong or stays right. Take responsibility. And we go to the next portion of this passage when it says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, Cut it off and throw it away, for it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And Jesus spoke about this guilt of lusting in the heart to a culture that, as we stated before, imposed strict, unrealistic clothing regulations on the women so they would not entice men. And that mentality proved that men were not taking responsibility for their actions. Not just men, but really all of humanity. Until they're addressing the heart issue, they're not taking responsibility for their actions. I don't know how many of you have allowed your thought world to go places where it should not go. But you never dealt with that before God said, God, I feel like I've gone too far and this has turned into lust and I am guilty before you. You just said, well, as long as I kept it quiet, long as I kept it secret, as long as I didn't act on that, I'm okay. That's great restraint. No, you entertained way too long. Now, here's the problem. It's a heart issue. And the disturbing reality is this. Jesus said you don't have to commit murder to be guilty of being a murderer. You don't have to commit adultery to be guilty of being an adulteress. So here we are in this church. And we are surrounded by murderers and adulterers. You're probably sitting on the same pew with one right now. Because if you thought it, if you've entertained it, you're as guilty as the person who did it in the physical. And that's how this impacted the crowd Jesus was talking to. He said, you think you're so clean, you think you're so self-righteous, you think you're so pure, you think you're so holy. And your thoughts have strayed and gone places it shouldn't have. And we're all guilty. Now, here's one of the problems I have. If, if there, there have been some well-meaning but severely misguided Christians from time to time come along that have said that they believe God intends us to live in sinless perfection. If we can just get enough Jesus, we can live in sinless perfection. If we can just get filled with the Holy Ghost, we can achieve sinless perfection. And they do not understand that just isn't the way it works. You cannot achieve a state of sinless perfection. You can't. You say, well, Jesus died so we could. No, he didn't die so you could be sinless. He died so you could be forgiven. And so I've heard people make the silliest comments. I had one preacher just a few years ago. He said, I can go two or three weeks without sinning. That gives me a headache even to have to repeat that. I'm not going to dwell there. That's that just so messy. I could, I could preach another hour on that one alone. That's, I think you all get it. We're guilty. We have failed. And it kind of kicks the props out from under me when I can say I've been faithful to my wife. But the Holy Spirit says, but your thought life. 
you haven't always been able to rein your thought life in. There have been failures. And I can say I'm, I'm not in prison today because I've never killed anybody. But I'm guilty before God for thoughts I've had. And you are too. Jesus puts this all at the feet of every individual in how they manage their heart and how they manage their thoughts. The church's calling is not to impose a dress code on this world. You cannot go many places today without being assaulted with indecency. It's on billboards as you drive down the highway. It's in the mall. Stores have their posters up. It's down at Walmart seven days a week. Just go look at the crowd that shops there. It's at the pool. It's at the park. It's at the restaurant. I was just talking with Matt Lair, who held our men's breakfast meeting a week ago yesterday, and he shared with me, he said, when I go and visit with my accountability partner and we meet in a restaurant, he said, one time we were in a restaurant meeting, and he said, the waitress who came and waited on us, had such a low-cut blouse on and, and, and so well-endowed that he said, he finally said to his accountability partner, said, this is really bothering me. He said, we never met there again. You see, it's in the restaurants. It's in the parks. It's on the billboards. Certainly on the television. We're being assaulted. Every, things are getting through the eye gates. And it's not just men. Young ladies somehow are learning how to be lustful, almost as a badge of honor. I was taking a group of young youth home that, that attend our youth group uh, a few months ago. And on that van, uh, taking them home, there was a little girl that she couldn't have been more than 13. I think she snuck into the youth. She was pretty young. And we were going home, and there was a, a couple of young men with their shirts off uh, who, at a stop sign, went across in front of the van. And this young girl, just coming into her sexual prime, she stares at them, and she lets out an explanation about hot something, and I'm not going to say what it was, and lustful. And I looked at her, and I said, excuse me? Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. She wasn't sorry. Out of my presence, she'll continue to talk like that and lust after these young men who are trying to draw women like flies. Our culture is encouraging lustfulness. Women who are supposed to be lusting after handsome young men. And men, obviously, young men who need no help and coaching in how to lust after young women. Jesus said, you're going to have to take responsibility for what's going on in your heart. And you can't get away from this. It's everywhere. Unless you want to go live in a monastery and be a monk. We weren't called to change the outside of people in this world. What we, we are called to do is get control of your heart. You can't avoid this. Jesus suggested one way, which he did not mean it literally. He said, why don't you poke your eye out? Now, the reason we know this isn't literal is because it's what's going on in the brain, not what's going on in the eye. That's the problem. I had a lady that worked in a mental institution down in Alabama that told me about one patient in the mental institution that they called King David. He had delusions that he thought he was King David. They discovered him one day. He had pulled his eyeball out. He had plucked it out. You know what the problem was? He read the verse in the scripture that said, if your uh, right eye offends you, pluck it out. So he did. But see, you still got a left eye. And if you pop that one out, you still have memory. And it's not what's going through the eye. That's not where the problem really lies because you're in a society where you can't hardly help it. Sometimes we have people come in here to church that are not dressed appropriately. Now, I know some churches will stop them at the door and say, go home. You know what? We're going to have to grow up. 
We're going to have to learn to control it from this side. Because sometimes people don't know what dress code is anywhere. But they're looking for something. They're looking for help. They're looking for an answer. And if we're so immature that we say, I can't look at you. You've got to go somewhere else. We're all, you know, you're going to have to get control of your own heart. You're going to have to take responsibility. And quit trying to dress the world and start addressing your own issues in your heart. That's where the battle really is. It's what we do with the images that enter our eye gate. You cannot blame the billboards. You can't blame the internet. You can only blame yourself for what you are doing with what's entering your eye gate. And one of the ways you can take responsibility is to do what you can, what is available to you, to control the eye gate. That's one you can do, but it won't solve everything. First of all, you don't have to stop and stare and ogle. That's your choice. Make the right choice. But I said a glance is desperate and, and, and dangerous too. And you don't have to go home and put in some racy movies that has gratuitous sex scenes for only one purpose, to tempt and tease and excite. You can make that choice. Take responsibility. You have many opportunities to make the right choice. If you fail to do so, you are not taking responsibility. The second thing you can do is take responsibility for dealing what has snuck through when you can't do anything about it. When it comes through the eye gate. And remember the process of lust that was taught us by Jesus' own brother, James. Now, he had something to say about this. Got right into the subject matter in the first chapter. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone with evil. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. So if God's not the tempter, who is? You got it now? Okay, we know who the tempter is. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my dear brethren. Notice the process. First, temptation is common. It happens to everyone. No one is exempt. Second, Understand where the temptation comes from. It's not from God. He tests, but he doesn't tempt. Any temptation to do the wrong thing is absolutely a temptation from the enemy, Satan. And James plainly tells us when we're tempted by our lust, we have this one thing in us that will constantly tempt us till the day we die. It's our lust. We're tempted by Our lust. Not tempted by the thing that came in our eye gate. Tempted by the thing that's already in us. Tempted by our lust. So if you can get control of your lust, if you can subdue this thing, it doesn't make any difference what comes in. Because you've mastered that thing within you which is tempting you. Third, when temptation becomes an issue and we allow lust to germinate, lust, when it conceives, brings forth sin, and sin, when it's finished with its work, you're dead, you're destroyed, you're done. Do not be deceived. Third thing you can do is sabotage the lust process. Jesus uses these two shocking expressions. If your right eye offends you, pluck it out. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. How many of you are aware that he repeated that another place in another time in another sermon. That's not the only time he talked about this fifth chapter of Matthew. You go to the 18th chapter of Matthew, and there he is talking about uh, to his disciples who are bragging about who's the greatest in the kingdom, and Jesus brings a little child into his presence, and he says, whoever becomes like this little child will be the greatest in the kingdom. You have to be like this little child, to even get in. You can't be talking about how great you are, how more important you are. You've got to become 
humble like this little child. Then he segues from that into this. He said, and whoever offends the least of these. It'd be better, better for them that a millstone were uh, tied around their neck and they throw it into the depths of the sea. Then he says, therefore, if your hand offends you, cut it off and throw it away. If your foot causes you to stumble, he throws in a third one here. Cut it off. It's better to enter into a life maimed or crippled than to have two hands, two feet, be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better to enter into life with one eye than to have two eyes be thrown into eternal fire of hell. So he has repeated this concept not just about thou shalt not commit adultery, but he repeats this about being humble like a child and not offending. And so, therefore, he's not really talking about really plucking an eye, really cutting off a hand, or really cutting off a foot. What he's talking about is the desperation of doing whatever it takes in both situations. Whatever it takes. There is no cost, no price too big to pay to get control of the lust that is taking us astray. You said it would be horrible to cut a foot off, an arm off, an eye. Yes, it would. And it wouldn't solve the problem. But you're probably just as hesitant to do the things it takes to get rid of the lust that is destroying your life and destroying your marriage and going to infect your kids and destroy them And how desperate are you to get rid of this? Are you desperate enough to fast and to pray and to do whatever it takes? And you say, I don't like missing a meal. You're not desperate, mister. You're not desperate, sister. I don't have time to pray. I've got some programs I've got to watch. You're not desperate yet. Jesus said desperate, desperate, desperate. Plucking out eyes, cutting off hands, chopping off feet. Get desperate about this. If you want this solved in your life, you can solve it, but you're going to have to get desperate to do it. Because casual approaches will never cure you. Jesus said if you don't get control of your lust, you will end up in hell. Is that enough motivation? Bow your heads.